There are some people who wake up and they bound out of bed ready for the day. I am not one of those people. I am not. There are a couple. There are a couple who can do that, but I am groggy and I want to extend my stay. How many of you play the five minute game? Just five more minutes. I learned that as a kid. I perfected it as a teenager. Just five more minutes. You know, and I would do that over and over again, not wanting, wanting to wake up to face the reality or the consequences of whatever might be coming my way. Now, I know that isn't for all teenagers, but I think it holds true hmm, kind of across the board. The thing is, as parents, as parents now, you got to get your kids up. And there are many things you do to get your kids up. Sometimes you raise your voice a little bit. I know parents have pounded on pots and pans. Some will take the covers and throw them off. And I don't remember if my mom actually did this, but I I think she might have poured cold water over me, maybe one time. I can't quite remember, but I, I have a recollection. The thing is that cold water is certainly a wake up call, is it? Isn't it? It's time to wake up. And so we come to our next church in the series, Sardis. And our Lord Jesus says to this church, it's time to wake up. So let us go and learn from our Lord Jesus. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So, Again, we find an image of Jesus at the beginning of each of these letters, and the images can be found in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. And it's just amazing to see how each image that is presented to the church is perfect for that church. He says, the words who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, do you remember what seven stands for, symbolizes It is perfection or completeness. So when we talk about the seven spirits, we're not talking about seven individual spirits here. It is the complete spirit of what, or better yet, of who. Who is the complete spirit? It's the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And this is perfect for the church in Sardis. Because what do we confess in the Nicene Creed regarding the Holy Spirit? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of what? Of life. The Lord and giver of life. And this is perfect because Jesus is talking to a church that is dead and needs to come back to life. Listen. There is no life in Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. That's why when we pray... We also pray to be enlivened, strengthened, encouraged, to be able to stand steadfast in Christ Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. We must never forget that that energizing comes from the Spirit. And on our own and apart from the Holy Spirit, there is no life. So Jesus is presenting the Holy Spirit already to this church that needs life. He also says, the one who has the seven stars. These stars would be the messengers. 
or angels. And we believe, we've talked about this before, that that would symbolize the pastors of each church. And that there are seven stars, talks about the completeness of the pastors or the angels, the messengers of these particular churches. Now, so each, pa- each church has a pastor, but this message then would apply for all of the pastors. And this is, I think, what we can also learn from this, that Jesus commissions the pastors to preach not human words of wisdom, but the very word of God given to us in Christ Jesus to preach words of life. You see, no matter how eloquent a preacher is, if he is preaching something that you can find in the self-help section of any store, he is not preaching life, he is preaching death. Jesus has commissioned the people, the pastors, to proclaim his word. The pastor's job, the pastor's role is to preach salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Redemption by the death and resurrection in Christ Jesus. Look, these are the only words that can bring you life and life everlasting. And the words that a pastor can give can only have effect in you because of the Holy Spirit. So this is the image that Jesus is presenting to the church of Sardis already, that there is life and life in his word, and his word must be preached. So now let's go ahead with what he sees. There's a pattern that we've normally done, which we start off with what he sees, which is good. But Jesus reverses this pattern, and we start off with what Jesus sees, the bad. So let's go to that. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Have you ever met somebody who's spiritually dead? Now, I don't mean those who are outside of Christ, because if you're not in Christ, the Bible already says that you're spiritually dead and you need to be reborn again, which, by the way, can only happen by the Spirit. But I'm talking about the people who are churchgoers, who are there, and they might even be very active in what they're doing, but you know that they're not alive, that they are spiritually dead, that they're going through the motions, but there's no life in them. And by the way, I'm not distinguishing between somebody who is an introvert and extrovert, because We often think somebody who's an extrovert, you know, alive and bubbly, that they're alive in the spirit. That's not the case. I've met many people who are both introverts and extroverts who are alive in the spirit, but I've also met many extroverts and introverts who are also dead. You see, the same thing that happens with an individual can happen with a church. And that's the case with Sardis. One theologian put it this way, the church, the congregation in Sardis was the very reverse of the church in Smyrna. Remember, Smyrna was under persecution. He said, Smyrna was put to death and yet lived. Sardis appeared to be alive and yet was dead. 
So what makes for a dead or dying church? You can go through and take a look at a lot of different lists and so forth. And there are a lot of outward physical representations of what makes a dying or dead church. There's declining attendance for a number of years. There's declining giving for a number of years. There's an inward with indrawn focus of the church. There's a lot of infighting about different changes, about what color the carpet should be and things like that. But I think these are actually only symptomatic of a spiritual death or a spiritual decay that has already been occurring in that church. So how does that play out in our modern day churches? I think there's a couple things. I think, first of all, there is no spirit of prayer in the church. Prayer is not at the forefront, it's an afterthought. I think there is no hunger for God's Word. Bible studies are either non-existent or very sparsely attended. There's just no desire for God's Word. That the messages are about self-esteem or self-improvement. I talked about that. Like, really, if you could get the sermon off a of self-help self-help shelf in a store. It's preaching words of death, not life. Sin, by the way, in those messages is rarely, if ever, mentioned. People talk about God in general terms, but rarely speak about Jesus. So there's a kind of a generic spiritualness of the church, but there's not a focus on Christ Jesus himself. There's no outreach to the community, nothing whatsoever. That's that inward focus I talked about. There's a lack of evangelism or just no desire to even share the good news with community, let alone friends. And finally, I think there's an emphasis on church attendance rather than discipleship. Symptoms of a dying or dead church. The call that Jesus is giving to the church in Sardis is one to wake up. In a similar vein, it's the type of call that God gave to Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. Remember Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones? It represented the spiritual graveyard of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 37 Verse 4, then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O bones, hear the word of the Lord. In a like manner, Jesus is talking to this church in Sardis and he says, hear my word, wake up, wake up and repent. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at one hour I will come against you. Now this call to wake up really resonated with Sardis. Let me tell you just a little bit about Sardis, and here's a picture of some of the ruins. Sardis is about 50 miles east of Ephesus. It was at the junction of five main roads, so it was a junction of a lot of commerce. So what you have here is you have uh, on the valley, 
a very fertile area where there's a lot of agriculture and a lot of uh, other things going on. And then up above, you saw on the back, the cliffs, about 1,500 feet high. So they're almost like two towns. That's why Sardis is actually plural. So you got a 15-foot uh, high tower in essence. And the king thought this was impregnable. You, you couldn't scale those walls. But here's what happened. Around 546 B.C., the Persian army came to Sardis. Uh, the king of Sardis thought, well, I'm just going to wait him out. But one day, and of course, this is how it would happen, one guard, one person in the army accidentally dropped his helmet down below. And he thought, he, I don't know what he thought, but he probably thought he was going to be in trouble. So he went down the wall to get his helmet and then climbed back up. Well, the Persian army saw this. They went, well, there's the way to get in. So at night, they climbed. They entered into the towers, into the fortress, and there was no resistance, and they overtook Sardis. Now, you would think that they would learn the lesson, right? But they didn't. They didn't, because in 214 B.C., the Syrian soldiers basically did the same thing, scaled up and overtook the town. So when Jesus says, wake up, be alert, it really resonated with the people, the church in Sardis. Waking up. I think one of the hardest things as a Christian to do is to actually keep Christ at the forefront. We'll just go with this. Keep Christ at the forefront of our lives. We get lulled by the routine of life, by the focus of what's going on in here now, don't we? I mean, we do. We get lulled by everything else that is going on in our life, and Christ easily takes a back seat for most of our day. Jesus talked about this in the gospel reading. He said, For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. This is why Jesus was very explicit in the commands he gives, because he gives a number of commands in our reading today. The first command is wake up. But he gives four other commands. The next command is strengthen. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. This means the faith and the works that you do need to be strengthened. Otherwise, they are about to die. Look, at one time, there was a lot of fire, so to speak, going on, fire of faith within Sardis, but it had burned down. And you know, when a campfire burns down, there's a lot of ashes. It's the embers underneath. And he says, basically, you got to take these embers and fan into flame the faith of these people. Otherwise, it's about to die. So strengthen what remains. The next command is to remember. Remember what you have heard and received. So what have they heard and received? I believe this is nothing other than the gospel. 
the gospel message. If somebody were to ask you just on the street to stop you, what's the gospel? I need to be saved. What's the gospel? I've only got 30 seconds to live. Would you be able to tell them? Or would you stutter and stammer trying to remember what the gospel is? There are many different verses you could use to share with them the gospel. I really like actually 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake he made him, that is Jesus, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or you could say, by grace you are saved through faith in Christ Jesus. The gospel message, it has to be at the forefront of our lives. And it's really easy to forget paraphrasing a quote from Luther. I can't quite remember the full quote here, but he was asked why he preached on justification by faith in Christ week after week after week. And he says, because week after week after week, we keep forgetting it. That's a fundamental truth. And that's why each week we come here, week in and week out, and we preach Christ and him crucified and that we are forgiven by his death, his resurrection, and faith in him alone. We need to remember, we need to keep this at the forefront. And this is what also Jesus says to help strengthen you is to keep it. To keep it. What is to keep it? Because that's the command, keep it. I think this is nothing other than to keep his words. Not only to remember them, but to live them out. Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And what's the great command, the great commission? The great commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you everything. That's to keep it in the forefront. And finally, the other command is repent. To repent. To turn from what has kept you from being awake, from remembering, from keeping. You see, Jesus is really serious about this with the church, isn't he? He's serious about this. He says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Brothers and sisters, you do not want to be on the side where Jesus is against you. This is the active judgment that Jesus brings to those people. Now, I know the idea that Jesus is against people goes against the grain of many, many folks today. They say, well, Jesus would never judge that way. Well, read the text. He does indeed. You know, I acknowledge that this series isn't a cakewalk, is it? There's a lot of serious things going on here. And we learn much about who Christ is. 
not only his grace and his mercy and his love, but his holiness and his righteousness and his justice and his wrath. You must see all of these warnings. See if this works here. All of the warnings and the call to repentance is done out of love. And that's what he has. All of this is done out of love. Jesus didn't have to warn the church, did he? He didn't have to warn the church. Look, there were many, many warnings from the very beginning on through the Old Testament. Read your reading from Isaiah. Jesus gave many warnings also in the New Testament. Read your gospel message. Again and again, he gave a warning. And he did it because he loves you. Look, a parent, if you have children, how many times do you have to tell them to do something? Right? Everybody, yeah, all, the, all these are going, don't look at me. But we say again and again and again in every single way until it almost drives our children crazy. And we do that because... We love them and care for them. Now, from their perspective, does it feel like love? It does not, does it? And any discipline doesn't feel like love, but parents who don't love their children don't discipline them either. See, the Lord loves you so much that he would discipline you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Then going on, verse 10 and 11. For they, are earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment all, discipli for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, to those who have been trained by it. So he is giving this warning because he loves you. Make this personal. He gives you this warning because he loves you and you individually and this church as a whole. So what does Jesus see? He says there is some good. There is some encouragement here. He says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, generally speaking, in even dying or decaying churches, there are still some who are spiritually alive. And Jesus here proclaims they have not soiled their garments. What would that mean? Well, if you just go back to Pergamum or Thyatira, it's, there's no false idol worship. They are not eating foods given to God. They are not doing things of sexual immorality. They have not soiled themselves in that way. Commentator Warren Wiersbe said this, the encouragement is that no church is beyond hope as long as there is a remnant in it willing to strengthen the things that remain. And he says, they're going to walk with me in white. 
So we are dressed in white by Christ. Now, white speaks to purity and holiness, right? And I've used the understanding of the church as the bride of Christ. And normally in weddings nowadays, what's the color of a wedding dress? White. And it symbolizes the purity coming before the groom. And thus the church is to be in the purity coming before the groom. But it's not that we ourselves are so good and that we ourselves have done such wonderful things that we can dress ourselves in white. It is Christ who dresses the church in white. Remember our reading from Ephesians talking about how Jesus loves the church? He says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. For those who have not soiled, this is what Jesus says, they're going to walk with me in white. Now the promise that we have is even more glorious. It says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, And I will never blot his name out from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a wonderful threefold promise in here that gives us the full assurance of eternal life with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is a glorious threefold promise. Now he speaks again of being robed in white. I want to take this a step further so you have an even greater understanding of what it means to be robed in white. And here we go to Revelation chapter 7, starting with verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are those clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You should read that almost on a daily basis for strengthening and for encouragement, because the promise there you see in Revelation 7 is so great that you are washed clean, by the blood of the Lamb, you are robed by Him. And that you are in the book of life, your name foredained in the book of life, not blotted out. And that He will confess you before the Father. This is also the promise He has given in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. And now to the church in Sardis, He says, 
that he will confess your name before my father and the angels. So I just had a glimpse of this last night and it was just a glorious glimpse. Imagine Christ receiving you into heaven and it brings you before the very throne and says, Father, I want to introduce you to my lamb. He, she is of my flock. They know my name and I know theirs and their name is written on the book of life. And I confess their name to you and to all the angels. Isn't that a glorious promise? I can think of no other better promise than that. And this is the promise that Christ gives to those who remain faithful who are conquerors because of faith in Christ Jesus. So what about you this morning? First of all, do you have any symptoms of spiritual death? Do you need a wake-up call? How will you wake up, strengthen, remember, and keep the Lord's and His words in front, in the forefront of your life? And then will you trust, will you find the assurance in the promise that he gives at the very end of his letter to the church in Sardis? And all the people said, Amen. We hope that you've been blessed by this message. If you have any questions or you would like to grow deeper in your faith, please visit our website at joyccc.com. Again, that's joyccc.com.